This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the Structural Engineering Channel, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and to help them in their careers and lives. In this episode, Rachel and I will be talking with Jared Morris, Senior Project Manager at Triton Construction Company, about key structural engineering topics like quality control, stack effect in buildings, managing building movement, and reducing noise and vibration. I'm your co-host, Matt Cardle. And I'm your co-host, Rachel Holland. Now, let's jump into our conversation of the week. Before we go on here, I would like to take a minute to recognize our sponsor for this episode, Menard USA. Do you have projects where you are faced with building on soft or loose ground? Does it seem like all the good sites are taken and you're always building on poor soils that are a challenge for conventional foundation approaches? Menard may be able to help. As a specialty ground improvement contractor, Menard works nationally and internationally providing design-build ground improvement solutions at sites with problematic soils. Typical projects include warehouses, buildings, material storage piles, embankments, roadways, port facilities, storage tanks, platforms, and more. In many cases, ground improvement is less costly than traditional approaches such as removal and replacement or piling systems. Menard works closely with civil, structural, and geotechnical engineers to minimize foundation costs for wide ranges of soil conditions, structure types, and loading conditions. To learn more about Menard USA or for help on your next project, please visit www.menardusa.com. That's www.menardusa.com. Hey, Jared. Hi, how are you? Thanks for joining us. And could you tell us a little bit about your career journey and what led you to have a specialty in, in structural engineering? Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's been a, a long process, uh, a lot of stops on the way. But so I started at Pratt Institute, got my bachelor's in architecture. And last year, uh, we had a career fair. Uh, there was about 50 some odd design firms and two construction management. Uh, I went through... Didn't really see anything that was interesting on the architecture side, but the CM I, I saw had done some work at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and working on the American Wing. I was very intrigued. So they said, hey, come by, check it out. We'll walk you around. And, uh, and so I went there and saw everything. Very interesting stuff. Uh, I definitely didn't have any understanding of how things were put together. I was, you know, an architect uh, at that by by trading at that point, but uh, I had never known uh, how to put things together. And uh, I wanted to get that experience. And so I thought, hey, let me just do this for a couple of years and maybe I'll go back. Um, so I, I went into the CM world, worked on a couple projects as a superintendent and uh, an assistant PM. And then probably about two, two years into it, I started getting really interested in structures and uh, bridges and, and, and that kind of stuff. So I went to get my master's in engineering at uh, Polytech, where it's it changed. They changed their name to uh, NYU Tandon School of Engineering and uh, went through that process, finished with my master's. And then obviously during my journey, 
uh, through the masters, I was also um, working full time as a CM. I had moved on from the location I was at previously and doing some ground up work at that time. So uh, a lot of 40 story buildings, cast in place concrete, very interesting stuff. But I did not have hands on engineering experience at that point. So when I tried to sit for the exam, uh, I got the letter back saying, nope, can't sit. You have to, you have to work for an engineer. So mm-hmm. I, I had the opportunity to, to uh, team up and work with uh, WSP for a couple of years doing shop drawing review, column design, slab design. And if I had my hours to sit for the exam, licensed engineer. And then I was like, oh, I have my bachelor's in architecture. Let me just finish this up. So I uh, went back and uh, applied for the test for that, sat for six exams, and uh, and now I'm an architect as well. So, you know, I, I've done a lot of roundup, uh, rental, multifamily rentals, uh, high-end luxury uh, condos. I, 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 I've worked on some of the biggest projects out there, uh, you know, one Manhattan Square or 250 South Street, Central Park Tower, Brooklyn Point, uh, some of these massive buildings in the city. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm all over the place. <laughs> yeah, that's. I love that. Yeah, I wanted to follow because it seems like you're pretty well rounded. You had you were educated in architecture. You got your license. Then you went into construction to learn all the construction techniques. So you're very in tune with how things are built. But then you also have an education in structural engineering. So I feel that would be very valuable. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 it definitely helps you. Yeah. Uh, and actually, uh, uh, one more thing I totally forgot about was uh, I'm actually a licensed uh, New York City superintendent. So I do have the license. For- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're very like well-rounded. And I think I think the other thing that's really cool just for our listeners to like be reminded of is like we always think things are linear, you yeah. know, like your career is going to go in a linear fashion. And it's just you're just, I mean, there's so many examples, but you're another example of how it just kind of can yeah, it's, it's, go in different directions. Yeah, it's, it's definitely evolved. Yeah. What about, Jared, um, how has the concept of quality control evolved in structural engineering? And what do you think are the current best practices for that? Well, uh, so at least in my experience, uh, you know, starting out in the field, uh, learning how things were put together, I got to understand, you know, all these details, uh, you know, the, I guess you would call it like the industry standards for how, you know, framing a wall or putting up uh, a ceiling. But it wasn't until I really started experiencing the issues and defects after, you know, either, you know, during the TCO process or, you know, during occupancy, finding issues with creaking or leaks or, or stuff like that, where I really started getting really involved and really interested in fixing the problems, you know, during construction and even uh, pre-construction during the design phase. So um, quality control is a really huge component uh, of my uh, experience and my career so far. And I'm very invested in making sure I'm doing everything I can to do, uh, to create a quality prop. Um, So we, you know, over the years, I've kind of developed, uh, along with a lot of colleagues, um, a really strong lessons learned protocol during the design phase and construction and obviously turnover, um, but also uh, more of like a checklist. And, uh, you know, every building is a little different. So the checklist is a boilerplate and we kind of modify it as we go. And depending on, you know, the systems, curtain wall versus window wall, we'll adjust the, the quality control, things that we'll check. 
And it just makes sure that one, there's no issues, right? So it's not, oh, you know, window guy came out today, can't install the window because this is not done. So it's more of a proactive, you know, approach to getting things finished. Yeah, I think like that's another thing. Like, I mean, obviously it comes into play, the the quality aspect of everything comes into play with these big projects and stuff like that. But I feel like just in our pro- profession, just overall, like, you know, we all are just so, we have to be, we're so responsible for like that, you know, just that built environment and, and, you know, like the end product. So yeah. the quality throughout the whole thing is just so significant. And and over the years, you know, the, the, when I started out, at least when I started getting into the high rise uh, portion, almost everything was a, a rat race or a, you know, a fire drill. We got to get this, you know, embed in place. Well, we don't have a shop drawing. Oh man, let's, let's get the shop drawing approved and let's, let's get this on site tomorrow, you know? Um, and now it's more of how do we make sure that we are planning ahead, doing the right thing, making sure the site is ready for it. It's prepared. You know, we have access lines ready to go. Uh, a lot of these things that people, you know, end up missing or overseeing, uh, just because the the nature of the business, uh, I like to focus on those details and making sure that we we are in the right place. We're you know proactive, um, and and so there's less mistakes. Yeah, and especially with all of the different disciplines, I, I know there's enough QC going on in the structural engineering offices, but out on site where there's so many different disciplines, uh, so many different. If anyone's ever looked at a construction schedule. Oh, yeah. for our listeners it's <laughs> it's intense with all the trades that are going in and what needs to be uh, i'm not envious of that at all <laughs> right right but yeah that just shows how much more important the the qc control is because yeah you've mentioned everything's hot everything's a rat race they need it tomorrow and yeah you can we can work like that but it's it's i think it's safer for everybody once we ha- we know everything is in control and right. and i think it takes uh people like you that you know, take the QC seriously and they're very detail oriented. Yeah. And um yeah, I wanted to jump into the the stack effect for oh, listeners yeah. that don't know about that too. Uh could you explain that and what the significance of that is? Right, right. So design? so stack effect or or air buoyancy, you know, most people know hot air rises, right? And if you have a very tall building, almost like a chimney, right? The hot air from the bottom wants to rise and then the, the air below gets displaced, right? And then wants to fill in with something else. So as the air rises, more air wants to rush in to fill in that void. And for a chimney, it works great. For tall buildings, not so much. And what ends up happening is the typical shafts, right? Your stairwells, your um, elevator shafts become these chimneys. And way back when, uh, with the old code, uh, there was a requirement of a one-third, two-thirds opening at the top of the elevator shafts, which was great for, you know, the removal of smoke if there was any kind of smoking condition uh, in the shaft. However, it's horrific for stack effect, and it just allows for the movement. Many people that obviously live in these tall buildings or even build these tall buildings totally understand uh, the issues, even building it. it it's horrible to you know, get people up and down in elevators when, when the space is wide open on the ground floor. Usually the ground floor is left open at the very end uh, because that's where everybody's mobilizing, logistics, loading docks. That's usually the last place to um, to finish and enclose. And uh, that's what introduces all the, uh, the cool air into space. But because of that airflow, you will have issues with 
doors closing, opening, elevators not working, shutting down because of the safety factors. And then mechanicals. If you have air getting pushed into a space, the mechanical, you know, pressures and stack effects. So the um, the mechanical spaces uh, usually have a, a, you know a static friction that they have to deal with. And if you start to introduce uh, an airflow into a space which is not designed for it, you can start damaging the units. Um, so stack effect is is, a, is huge, and it can definitely uh, affect everything in the building. That's really. That's really interesting. I've never, I mean, I've never in my previous consulting experience, I never worked on high rises. So totally new information for me. And I mean, it sounds like it's challenging. So like, how do you deal with them? And like, what, I mean, where do you come into play with dealing with it? Is there like innovation, innovative solutions or like, what do you do? So this is kind of where my background, it really starts to peak. Um, So I do have, I would, I would say a better than a basic understanding of mechanicals. Uh, I did a lot of mechanical coordination over the years, so I'm not saying I'm 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 a mechanical engineer, but I I do have a, a very good understanding of how the systems work, you know, how the systems operate. And so when when I get into a job, you know, it's usually over 40 stories where you start seeing the the true effects of the stack effect. It's a different mentality than I, I guess a lot of people that are very specialized and focused, like mechanical guys, just understand. You know, most of the time they just understand their mechanical system well, versus architecture. Oh, I just know my doors and frames and hardware. And then obviously structural. I'm, I'm only concerned or only know what the loads impose on the bill. So me being able to see it from different lenses and different hats, the idea of the movement of air, if you can just break it down to, you know, stopping that movement, right? If you know the elevator shaft is a shaft, right? There's, there's nothing stopping it. I've dealt with projects where we tried, you know, working with RWDI, who is, you know, world renowned on uh, these towers and, and wind movement and stuff, working with them, trying to work out a, a program. Uh, we've tried to temper the, uh, the shafts. We, you know, plugged in a couple um, openings, every mechanical floor to uh, condition the air so that the temperature gradient uh, basically stays where it is or, or where it should be, let's say on a normal summer day or something like that, trying to make sure that, that there, there's no temperature difference from the top to the bottom and therefore not introducing uh, any buoyancy, right? But I would take it even further and I would just completely isolate the shaft. So what I've seen is elevators are not airtight. I worked on a bunch of projects with a bunch of different elevator guys. There are weather seal gaskets and such like that. They're not set. And most of the time they get damaged. They need to be replaced all the time. I, in my mind, the elevator and the corridor are one volume. So using that as an idea, make sure that the air is neither negative or positive. So there's no pressure differences. So the air has nowhere to go. If you can compartmentalize these volumes and keep them separate from anything from the outside or inside, you can mitigate the airflow, which is something that a lot of people, I mean, I think, I think what that, that process is a little different than a lot of people uh, understanding the process, but it has helped me in, in the past on resolving the movement of air. So a lot of times I'll focus on the stairwells, making sure those gaskets are perfectly sealed. They have a drop seal, they have a gasket around the frame. There's 
you know, a lot of people like to condition the air in the, in the stairwells, like at the very top, they'll put a, a heater in. Sometimes they put it in the bottom, very bottom. I would say you don't put anything in. And if you do, it's only at the top, just to temper the air that you might be, you know, when you open the door to literally temper. Because if you put that heat in the bottom, it's going to want to continue to rise in the stairwell. And so you'll... Yeah, I was just going to say, when you said you would put the heater in the top, um, trying to work through how that works, like if the hot air wants to rise, but you already have the hot air up there, it, it just basically... Does that make it not go it up? It just doesn't need to go up. It doesn't go out anywhere. It, if anything, it just uh, can kind of like fill that volume at the very top. And if anything, if there's more of it, I'll just start to migrate down to fill in the space below. But it's not that. So it'll kind of like counter right. what's naturally happening. Yeah. Okay. Um, and another thing is, which a lot of people don't think about, is the reverse happens also. So stack effects, obviously in the winter time, very huge amount of air rushing up, cold air coming in from the entryways going up. But in the summertime, it's the reverse. So it wants to go down, then come out. And and another thing that happens, which, you know, in a multifamily house or uh, uh, building, you have people opening up windows. You know, I'm cooking, so I want to open up a window because, you know, getting the air out. That is a huge no-no. <laughs> and that is a huge component and contributor uh, to a lot of the stack effects in a lot of buildings. So if you're in a multifamily uh, dwelling, keep your windows closed. You know, as much as possible. So is this the, it seems like the stacking effect, it's not just during construction, it's when the building's built too, right? Oh, yeah. It has the, the shaft. Yeah. No, definitely. It's definitely, it, you, you'll see it in construction, but obviously everything is still open. Uh, almost everything is still uh, not completely tightened. Gaskets aren't installed yet, so there's there's a lot of airflow. But when, when it's occupied, that's really when you see the, the real problems of elevators shutting down, not being used. Uh, doors being impossible. And Jared, when does, how tall, like how many stories does it need to be before this really um, becomes a consideration? Uh, I mean, I've seen it. It's it's less of a, a huge burden, um, but I've seen it on 40 stories. Um, but obviously the taller you get, the more of an effect it is, the more of a, an issue. So you're saying like 40 story, multifamily, then you should keep your windows closed? <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's going to be anywhere that you have a temperature differential, you know, anywhere that introduces that difference, uh, you know, from the bottom to the top, just like a chimney, right? So a chimney could be 10 feet tall, could be a thousand feet tall, but the taller the building, the more that effect is detrimental to the building, the systems and, and occupants. Okay. So something that's like, 10 stories you could. doesn't typically have this it's definitely not as noticeable uh you probably wouldn't realize okay. it uh but it, it all happens in any size bill it's just less of a burden okay there. okay so like, I I, like thank you like what we were saying before 40 stories is probably where you're gonna be more you know uh thinking about those type of issues and trying to prevent them yeah, you're taking me back to my thermodynamics classes. Cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting because yeah, I haven't really thought about that. But it's one of those things there. A lot of the lessons learned, right? After it's yeah. built, and then you'll get customer complaints or issues once the building's in full operation. It's like, what yeah. does this happen? Oh, this thing that no one's really thought about because everyone's so specialized, right? Um, so that's really interesting. But it's also interesting. I mean, I've never lived in like a, you know, like a condo tower, you know, that's over 40 stories. But like just personally, like 
in my living space, like I want to be able to open the window. So like, can you really tell a a resident like, or can you, can you make those windows not able to even be opened? Like, is that even uh, allowed? So obviously new codes require uh, ventilation. So there's light and air requirements uh, for the new buildings. Uh, way back when, let's say, uh, you know, 1920s with the, uh, uh, you know, the tenement housing where there wasn't enough light or there, uh, you know, that wouldn't have been an issue. But nowadays when you have these big, tall, you know, glass structures, windows are three foot by six foot, it's a massive pane of glass that when open, you know, it's providing that light and air, but it's also a huge pathway to get out. Um, there, there really isn't anything saying that you can't open your window um it's just uh you know well you will have uh drop seals and gaskets at your entry doors also right so that's gonna help isolate your apartment from the corridor and on on that your your apartment wants to be more positively uh pressurized right so you want to have a positive pressure in your apartment versus the corridor because you don't want anything like let's just say you're smoking your apartment you don't want that smoke to come out of your apartment and into another apartment. So you, you always want to keep every apartment high, uh, uh, positive pressure and then the corridor negative pressure to, to minimize that, that movement of air. But because of that, now that if you open your window, you're going to change that flow, right? And now you can make your, your apartment negative and forcing air from other people's apartments into yours. Also, like we talked about it, it affects the ventilation. So you will have ventilation in your kitchen, right? You'll have your ventilation in your bathroom. Typically, it's uh, monitored or uh, there's, you know, either a VFD or uh, a car damper that's regulating the flow of air. So, you know, if you have a huge gust of air that flows through, you could mess with the car damper. It can jam it up. It could definitely mess with, you know, the dynamics of the, the building systems. And, yeah, that was interesting in terms of all the things that go into that. <laughs> it's like... What do you call it? Serviceability things that. Yeah, yeah. But basically, if the elevator's not working, you can blame someone for cracking open their window. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, some some other things that I wanted to get into that may not be as observable to people that haven't really delved into it. Uh, what about building movement? I know that's okay. a critical factor. Could you jump into that one and explain to to our listeners how how that goes into structures? Yeah. So obviously, the taller the building the larger the movement um, because of my experience in some of these really tall ones, um, the buildings move and a lot of people don't want to hear about that because it's a little disconcerting uh, to know that your building is moving a couple feet either direction. Uh, but the buildings move. It's like a living thing and it needs to move. Uh, if you try to restrict it, it will crack. It could break. Paints glass can start to crack uh, if there's enough torsion. But that's the other part. Uh, you know, buildings move, but they don't move as simple and as straightforward as you want it to move, right? Most of the time, they're going to get a wind gust in a direction that may be not perpendicular to a, a facade. And so it's going to want to a twist. And, and there's torsion, depending on the shape, right? If it's an asymmetrical shape, it's going to want to twist in a certain way, you know, based on the center of mass. There are a lot of buildings in the city that move and rotate. Um, some are worse than others. Some have slosh tanks and mass dampers at the top to minimize the feeling of that movement. You still have the movement, but it's less of a 
a feeling, uh, you know, when you reduce the period, when, when the building moves one side back to the other, that's your period. If you can reduce that so it's less of a, a, a realized feeling, right? But if you try to stiffen it up and, you know, some, some designers think stiffer the better, right? You, you actually will start to introduce more of a vibration. And you really don't want to have that. You want to let the building move. You want to let it sort of flow with the wind. When you don't and you try to restrict it, and a lot of times it's more about the interior partitions and the exterior facade and structure. When you try to engage both of them and have a rigid connection between both, you will have cracking. You will have noises. Sometimes it's really audible. Sometimes it's not. Uh, I had a teacher at Polytech who did the, uh, an analysis on the old trade center towers and how they moved. And he said that the, the people that worked at the very top, uh, they would get sick. They would have like a seasickness as it was moving too much. The creaking of the sheetrock against the ceiling would be audible. People would hear that. So it's the same thing in, in all these buildings. But right, obviously now we have a little bit more uh, limitation on them than before. So you mentioned like wind, that's the, the, the most obvious one. Are there other um, causes for building movement? And then like my other question, we, we had a, a guest recently that dealt with um, dampers at the top of buildings, but are, is that typically what you'll do is like a slosh damper or, or the um, mass damper, the mass yeah. damper or is that, or do you have other, other ways of dealing with it? So those are the, the key types. Uh, I'm sure there's some others out there. And minimize the uh, the movement, but slosh tanks are typically at the top of residential towers. Very few buildings, like Central Park Tower and Taipei 101, have the mass damper, which is just a massive it is steel, uh, maybe even encased or not encased, but filled with concrete. This probably that extra mass to counterbalance the wind movement. Um, it's usually water and in a tank, uh, almost like a pool that will. Yeah, mitigate that uh move that that's typical of very tall buildings um usually residential i don't know of any commercial building that has one um usually they don't do that it's not you know worth it i guess yeah and what you mentioned noise and vibration as well especially with uh maybe the non-structural elements just scraping and at, at each other but uh yeah could you go into that what what are the lessons learned that you've you've used to mitigate those types of maybe non-structural issues, but yeah. super annoying if you live there? Yeah, yeah. There. So, so a lot of these buildings, these uh, these super talls and even like forty stories above, the the suggested approach is to either have a slotted track or a uh, vinyl line track in your partition, so that thing will move with your slab above, while as a stud below just will stay where it is. And the movement from live load will just keep going. And then all this, obviously, you can move side to side. Now, there's there's nothing really um, helping it with the rotation. So when you have your interstory shifts, right, when one, one floor wants to move past another or wants to twist, there's really nothing that's really good at this point that I've seen that will limit any of that movement. Um, what usually happens is that corners of, or intersections of uh, walls that's when you're, you're going to have that possible uh, torsion but what i've seen is if you can just essentially disengage all the partitions everything from that floor and either 
I mean, you could probably do it either way, but the best is disengage your partition, mount them to the floor, right? Have them almost freestanding and disengage it from the slab above so that when they do move in different directions, they're not restricted. Because when it's restricted, that's when you start hearing the, the noises and seeing the cracks. So you definitely, it, you always want to restrict it from shear walls, columns, any of the main structure. And then obviously the same thing with your window wall. Your window wall is going to, or curtain wall or any any facade element, it's going to flex with the wind pressure, right? And some, obviously, you know, some facades like brick will have less of a deflection than glass. But, you know, depending on the, the floor to floor heights, uh, it could be a half, of inch, uh, half inch deflection at the midpoint. So you want to allow that to move. You want to make sure that there is a gasket so that it's sealed, but also, you know, allows to expand and contract. And then obviously you have to make sure that it's all fire stopped and, and sealed between floors and between the, the, the demise. Super interesting how that all comes into play. Yeah. What about in terms of emerging technologies and methodologies? Like, are there any that you're excited about or super excited about in structural engineering and then you know obviously related to this like quality control building dynamics and things that you've like really have a lot of experience yeah yeah well i mean uh, on the structural side you know a lot of these uh bim tools are are great right analyzing and visualizing the space but one of the things for the quality control side of things is uh what i've been using now open space which is a basically a, a camera tour of the building right so you'll have a camera some people either mount it on their hard hat and walk around or they can hold it but the camera takes pictures of everything and you do it at every stage of the project so if you're pouring concrete you do it you know when you form the deck when it's poured when you're laying out your walls and then obviously the the critical mm-hmm. thing uh for most people is when you're piping all your risers and then you close up that wall now you want to mount a cabinet but you don't remember where that pipe was you can go back into an open space and you can basically go through the layers of the uh, the progress of the job. And so you can find out where, oh, there's a water line there or there's a gas line there. I can't screw into that. That's been a huge uh, advancement, at least for me on the construction side, to make sure that we're, we're doing the right thing, right? We can track the progress, but also we can make sure that we avoid any issues in the future. How does that work? So the open space sounds interesting. So you were saying... Through each phase, there's a camera that takes photos. I mean, well, it's you know you. Uh, so I think I, I've heard of a camera stationary on floors, but that just seems a little uh, costly if you're going to do it on every floor. But no, uh, for what we are doing, uh, we're holding that camera, and it's it's all recording into the cloud. So all the the layers get piled floor by floor, and then we'll you know go back to our desks. It'll, it'll load up into the cloud, and then you can basically download a floor and see all the different layers. But you, you have to physically walk through the space and walk in. What about once you've captured all of that image imaging, do you have to like manually go through it? Or is it some sort of like a program that will like put it in the right place of your building? Yes, yes, there's a program. So basically it'll capture and knows where you are before you even start with the the, running the camera, you'll say, okay, I'm on this floor, I'm starting. And then it'll capture the information and then bring it back to the model. They they have... So like later on, you could be like, I want to look at story 42 on the north side wall where like pipe 
whatever it yes. is, and it'll just find it. Well, you, you can That's you can go to that floor, and then you'll you know just scroll through the the floor plan to get there. But yeah, we input a a three D model of the building, so they know you know how many floors there are. And then we'll just tell them, hey, I'm on the, this floor at stair C. And then that's when the camera starts. It'll triangulate itself and, and know where it is. That's awesome. Yeah. What about a, I, I don't know if you've worked with post-tension tendons before. Does it work for that? Uh, I mean, I'm sure it could. Yeah. I, I'd never use post-tensioning. I know that's a huge thing in Florida. I just don't think we have the personnel knowledgeable enough to do it <laughs> here yet. Uh, but maybe soon. No, I, I, I mean, I understand the process and I think it would be great for that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, Jared, last question. I, I know you have a lot of experience in all these different disciplines, but did you have any advice for uh, structural engineers, maybe architects, maybe even engineers that want to get into construction? Uh, do you have anything for them for to be uh, successful and have an impact in their careers in this field? Well, I guess for each one, right? So for architects, if you really love architecture, stay with it. There's a lot of us that are going away from it. Uh, and we need some strong architects. Yeah, I know it's it's usually hard. I remember uh, when I was at Pratt, we had a bunch of classes where they, they informed us, you will not make a lot of money. Are you guys still interested in going in? <laughs> uh, they, they, they basically told us all of the, you know, the bad stuff. But hopefully, you know, I do still have a lot of friends in architecture and uh, we need some more good, strong architects. Um, so definitely find a, a practice that's, you know, good practice that you can learn a lot, find a mentor, uh, and make sure you, you learn as much as you can, ask a lot of questions. Structural engineers, you know, luckily I didn't have to do it for that long, but when I was in the office designing, oof, it was grim. <laughs> Everybody was spending a lot of hours reviewing drawings, spending a lot of hours designing. It didn't look fun. And again, a lot of those people ended up uh, coming out to uh, the CM world and and finding more fun on the field or in the field. Again, structural engineers, we need you. We need <laughs> If you're interested and you love it, stay with it. Uh, we need some strong guys out there that know what they're doing. Again, it's it's very hard to find firms that have the, the mentors and have the time to really teach everybody the, the right things. It, it is a hard process, especially some people can get pigeonholed in designing bathrooms for architects or you know, for uh, structural engineers, maybe you're, you're stuck only doing column design and slab design. It would be great to go to a company where you can get involved in wind design, maybe foundations, a uh, little bit of everything. And then for the CM world, you know, it's it's finding a good team to work with. I, I've been around a few companies now, and as long as they're interested in, in making sure that the young people are taught well, that have, you know, good mentors on the project that can kind of guide people through the process. It's very helpful. And obviously with uh, the larger projects, they'll be stuck on that project for years. So sometimes it's beneficial to mix and match, you know, do a commercial interior for four months and then do a large ground up 40 stories for two and a half, three years. I would definitely suggest mixing it up if you can. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. I know it's like a I think for all of these professions, uh, at least for architecture and engineering, it's, yeah, it was an interesting route that they gave you of, uh, hey, yeah, you're probably not going to get paid a lot, but yeah. it's, uh, what do you call it? What you were saying, if if that's something that you enjoy and that's something that uh, you're passionate about, right? 
and you know all the, the the bad things going into it and if you could say yes to that then i think that's that's great because it if it's for you it's going to be one of the most fulfilling yeah. careers that you get a lot out of yeah um i i actually and i think you i also you touched on it too like just being open to change yeah. like if you're not really fulfilled in your current role position company whatever like it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be an engineer. You shouldn't be an architect. It just means maybe you need to find a different position right. or a different company or a different team or whatever right. it may be that is more fulfilling to you. Right. So like kind of don't give up. Yes, exactly. I think that's your advice. But, but the other thing that, you know, I've, I've noticed, you know, because I went right into the field, I have so much more knowledge and experience that I, I could never have kind of equated to 20 years in college, you know, another 20 years. I would suggest for everybody, and it really should be like a mandate for getting your license. You should find a trade, carpentry, masonry, electricians, you know, find a trade that you, you find interesting and get on a job and do work for two years. Do the work in the field, understand the process, understand the issues, the defects, all these things so that when you can go back to the uh, your architecture or structural engineering firm, you have a better understanding of, oh man, well, this is what they want to do. This is how they go. To, they're they're going to approach this, and you can you can end up. At least for me, I've become a better designer. I have more insight, more understanding. It's uh, I could put together a set of plans much faster than I would before. Uh, know the issues, resolve those issues ahead of time. I think it's invaluable thing for someone young that has the time experience or has the, uh, the ability, right? They're young enough. They can jump around. They can run upstairs. Uh, they should definitely get involved on a job, field work. Yeah. And even if you don't have like, I mean, I know two years is like a long time, right? And that would be yeah. amazing if people could do that. But like, even like I know for us, like we really encourage our engineers to go out and do like field, you know, site visits. Yeah. Like, so I'm sure it's similar for you, Matt, when you're going out to do inspections and things like that. Just being in the field, talking to the contractors, seeing the stuff firsthand and like really understanding the challenges, it makes you, I think it makes you a better designer. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And it definitely helps. I, I wish that was part of our curriculum too. Like actually, it's, I find it weird where for new graduates, for maybe engineering, I know for an, an architecture, you're going to, your task is to design something that you don't even know maybe what the material is. Right, right. <laughs> okay. So it's kind of working backwards, and I think that can lead to what the contractors, you know, what are, what are they doing? Yes. <laughs> There's like a disconnect, so I think that would definitely help if that was part of our educational curriculum. For definitely, definitely. Engineers. Yeah, I could definitely see the benefit of that. But yeah, thanks thanks for the Good. advice, Jared. I really yeah. appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your experiences and lessons learned. Uh, I, I definitely learned a couple of things here. <laughs> Me too. Yes. Thanks, Jared. I totally appreciate it. It was yeah. great to meet you and talk to you. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Uh, thank you for you know inviting me onto the show. This is great. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and our questions. To leave them, please visit the structuralengineeringchannel.com. There, you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as the links to any of the resources or websites mentioned during this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering endeavors.